I think it goes without saying that Mary's song was an act of worship. It was worship, worship to the core. And that was the point you and I wrestled with just uh, the last time we were together, that in fact, every act in the Christmas story, every, every scene in the nativity play is linked to worship. But I'm going to be even more categorical right now. And I'm going to declare that every act of your life, every scene of my story is linked to worship. Everything we do as human beings is linked to worship. You know why? Because we were wired for worship. Does that mean everybody, every, everybody believes in God? No, 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 no. Not everybody worships God. But everybody has a God to worship. And that's the point. And in my humble opinion, nobody makes that point more provocatively and convincingly than, than the atheist, the atheist writer, David Foster Wallace. Brilliant young mind. English professor. Writer of fiction and short stories. In fact, Time Magazine listed his magnum opus, and it's this thick, Infinite Jest, listed that book as one of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. I don't know why they chose 2005, unless it's because in 2006, the world tragically lost that brilliant mind of David Foster Wallace. He died at his own hand. His life story is such a heartbreaking tale of sadness. I read it as either in the New Yorker or in the Atlantic magazine. It just, it just breaks your heart. Anyway, in a graduation address he gave in Kenyon College, which is an Ivy League, Ivy League college down here in Ohio, it's a small college, much smaller than us, he spoke words that have been recorded. They've circulated the planet. He speaks about worship. This is, a, this is the longest quotation I have ever used in a homily at any time. But I don't want it. I could read it here to you, but you really need, you need the, the, the listening and the reading simultaneously. So, so look at the big screen. Don't look at me. The, the screen here on the platform, the big screen's in front of us. You're, you're on live streaming right now, and we're glad you're joining us. Take your little screen and just read the words. Think of what he's writing. Provocative indeed. We put him on the screen right here. David Foster Wallace. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, writes this atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or, or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess, or the four noble truths of some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Watch. If you worship money and things, 
If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. He goes on with his list. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self." End quote. Wow. Did he nail it on the head or what? My, oh, my. Did you catch the point? We are wired for worship, all of us, all humanity of us. Not everybody worships God, but everybody has a God to worship. So who's the God you worship? Hmm? Speaking of the craziest things we worship, the title of this homily today, take a gander gander at this listing. I want you to open your Bible to Revelation Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18, it's the obituary of Babylon, the final anti-God confederacy on earth. Feels like a Walmart Walmart inventory list. That's what it feels like. But I want you to, I want you to brood over this for a moment. Now, uh, nobody would go to Revelation 18 in the Christmas season. I get it. So we need to find some way to tie this to the Christmas story. So let's do this. Let's look for the three gifts of the wise men in this inventory. All right? Drop down. So you're, you're, you're in Revelation 18. Drop down to verse 11. All right? Here we go. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, speaking of this anti-God endgame confederacy, Babylon, will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold. Bing! There's one of the gifts of the wise men. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, 
fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh. Whoa, there's, the, there's another one. Of myrrh and frankincense, there's that third one of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. I'm going to let that line just hang in front of you. Because if this is an obituary to Babylon, which means it comes from Babel and confusion, is it possible? I'm just talking to fellow third millennials. Is it possible? that you and I have been taken as slaves by our culture. Could it be? Nah, you say, I'm not taken as a slave by my culture. There's, there was nothing in that list that I would call a little g-god in my life. That may be true, but then... Along comes a, a blogger named Jeffrey Curtis Poor, his webpage, rethinknow.org, who raises his hand and said, yo, 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 stop, stop, stop. What do you mean you don't recognize your God? And then he has the audacity, get this, to put together the top ten idols. He calls them idols. The top ten idols, or gods, we would say, in America today. And it's a list that... You and I probably could put together from money to jobs to status to physical appearance, to entertainment to our phones, technology, family, influence, or fame. But it's his number one idol that caught me by surprise. You know what he says it is for you and me? Number one idol? Identity. Identity. You think about the hot button, the hot button debates in social media right now. They have to do with identity, gender identity, sexual identity, political identity, even in this congregation, <laughs> the divide, racial identity, religion or anti-religion identity, rich and poor identity. I don't know. He may be onto something. Our number one God, my identity. And with Babylon writing its endgame obituary the way she does, who's surprised that this whole debate of identity is confusion to its core? But then Jeffrey Curtis Poor offers us four questions. He says, okay, Dwight, I'm going to help you identify who your gods are. All right? So I'm going to run the four by you. See what you think. I think it's rather prescient what he came up with. Let's see. Ask yourself four questions about worship. Question number one, where do I spend my time? Hmm? Where do I spend my time? Look at it. If you're gaming until 3 o'clock in the morning and then dragging into class at 8 o'clock the next morning, it's a no-brainer. Where do you spend your time? If you're the guy moving to the top of your ladder, and you're coming home late every night. The kids are already in bed, and you grab a cold meal with your spouse. It's a no-brainer. Where do you spend your time? 
Question number two, where do I spend my money? Question number three, where do I get my joy? What turns you on? What makes you happy? What really lights your fire? Hmm? And then to break the pattern, to get our attention, here comes question number four. What's always on my mind? What is it? Always on my mind. Hmm. I'm telling you, we are wired. We are wired for worship. Very much unlike David Foster Wallace is another thinker, Christian thinker and writer. Title of his book, Unceasing Worship. He makes the same point Wallace does in two sentences. I think he's right. His name is Harold Best. Here he goes. Nobody does not worship. Nobody. Not you, not me. Not worship. It's a good way to put it. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in the light of a chosen or choosing God. Chosen means I choose the God. Choosing means the God chooses me. It's one or the other. We'd say capital G, little g. It's one or the other. He's right, isn't he? That's the question that the uh, outer breath, rich young ruler, remember, he comes running up to Jesus. <sighs> oh, I wanted to ask you a question before you left. Go ahead. Listen, uh, good teacher, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus steps back and says, why are you calling me good? There's nobody good but God. Are you thinking I'm God? No answer. Okay. I'll tell you what to do. Keep the commandments. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. And honor your dear parents. <sighs> the boy smiles. I've been doing that ever since I was a kid. Good, Jesus said. There's one more. If you want to be perfect, take everything you have, you sell it. Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then you come follow me. I'd love to have you in my circle. And by the way, the Gospel of Mark, it's the only one of the three accounts that states this little angle. Jesus looked at the boy, and the Gospel of Mark says he loved him. Man, I'd love to have this young man in my circle. But all three accounts end with the same tragic ending. The boy's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Turns out there was one commandment he had omitted. The numero uno commandment in the numero uno morality code on this planet today. 
pushed to the top of the Ten Commandments. God's choice to put it at the top. Everybody knows the first commandment. You shall have no other little g gods before me. The little g gods will still be there. But you shall have no other gods before me. Says who? Says the one who spoke these words. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of what? What's the next word? Out of the land of slavery. Do you suppose this is the same Lord God who could bring us out of Babylon, out of the land of slavery, to a culture that forces us to worship it to succeed? Hmm. What were those four questions again? Where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Where do I get my joy? What's always on my mind? Worship. Which is why I suppose it's more than coincidental that at the same time Babylon is, is, is enslaving an endgame culture with her little g-gods. There is a simultaneous countercultural message that has everything to do with worship that goes to the ends of the earth. You may have read this line before, Revelation 14:7, "Fear God," capital G, and give him glory. My soul doth magnify the Lord. That's what little Mary was doing. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship we're wired to worship. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Because every scene of the endgame story and every act of your own life story always comes back to worship. You were wired to worship. Whether you give your life and worship to the little g-god of your choice, doesn't matter. Whether you, whether you give your life and your worship to the capital G-god in the universe, Jesus' command is still the same. Sell everything you have. Get rid of all those little g-gods. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And by the way, if you're waiting for Jesus to change his mind or adapt his uh, requirement for you because of who you are, it's too late. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He's already gone to the cross to show you and me what it means to give your worship and your life to the only capital G God in the universe. So deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. For I have wired you to worship me and only me. The Christmas mall elevator was packed. You can picture it. The young mother, frazzled, 
spent from hanging on to her two children and shopping bags of Christmas whatever is the last aboard as uh, that packed car that's heading down. And when the doors close behind her, it's obvious the holiday mania had taken its toll. And that young mother is blurted out to no one. Whoever started this whole Christmas thing ought to be taken out, strung up, and shot. Somewhere in the back of that crowded car came a voice. Don't worry, lady. We already crucified him. And they said that all the way down, you could have heard a pin drop in that elevator. Let's pray. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. Oh, come. Come to my heart. If we have been wired for worship, let the record show we choose to worship only you. Amen.